Well, we've been on Sunday nights, we've been working through, I have a question. These are questions that I've been asked um, over the years as a pastor here and in Alabama and just trying to take them, take them one at a time and uh, maybe be helpful with them. So let's go to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. Um, and kind of hold your place there in the second half of Proverbs because we're going to be there a lot. I'm going to ask you to look at a lot of Scripture tonight. A lot of times I'll put it up on the screen or I'll just read it to you. But I want you to see these especially tonight. Proverbs chapter 20. And here's the question before us. Okay? Number seven in our list. is it, What does the Bible say about alcohol? Is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? And there, there's a couple different perspectives on this. Some would say, no, not at all. Some would say, in moderation, as long as you're not drunk. And some would say, sure, knock yourself out, literally. Um, we'll get into that. Now, I want to be careful here. I believe that the Bible has a clear answer on this, this subject. I do. Last, last week, we, we admitted that there is some room for interpretation. I don't see that in this issue. I really don't. That said, it is theoretically possible for someone to see this differently and still love the Lord because they just don't see the teachings of the Bible in the same way that I do. It is possible. I believe they'd be wrong, but they can love the Lord and see it differently. But I go back to what we've said over and over again. I so wish that people were as adamant about what they know the Bible commands as they are about what they may hope it allows. Um, and so we'll, we'll get into it here in a minute. Um, let's read the verse. How about that? Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Father, would you help me to bring this message in the way that most pleases you? I do not wish to flag not even a little bit on this issue, but at the same time, Lord, I don't want to hurt people needlessly. So, Lord, help me to proclaim your truth, to take the right position, but also the right disposition. And to be helpful, may I rightly divide your word of truth, and may Christians be helped. We're going to thank you for it. May Jesus be lifted up, for it's in his name we ask these things. Amen and amen. This, this is beca- it's always been a subject of debate, debate, but it seems lately that it's becoming more and more of a subject of conversation amongst Christians. I'm talking about people that are saved. I'm talking about people that read their Bibles. What does the Bible say about alcohol. So let me let me begin before we even get into what the Bible says. Let me let me start to build a little bit of a, a contextual scaffold here, okay? Let me give you some practical observations from outside the Bible. Now this is not Bible what I'm about to give you, okay? But I want to give you some practical observations from outside the Bible. Um these with the exception of of maybe one source, these are sources that we would not consider to be friendly to evangelical Christianity. See, it's easy to find some survey that some church like yours took that tries to prove your point. I'm bringing you statistics that are from groups that traditionally have not been fans of ours. 
So I do that because what I'm going to give you is a conservative estimate. Okay, you'll see what I'm talking about in a second. According to the National Institute of Health, would you agree with me that the National Institute of Health is not necessarily pro-Christian? Okay. But according to the National Institute of Health, 85.6% of people over 18 reportedly have drunk alcohol at some point. 85.6. In 2019, 25.8% of people over 18 reported to have engaged in what's called high-intensity drinking. We would call that binge drinking in the last month. According to the 2019 National Survey, let me make sure I get this right, on drug use and health, 14.5 million people, listen to this, ages 12 and older. 14.5 million people ages 12 and older had what's called alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder is what we used to call alcoholism, which is what we used to call drunkenness. Okay? 14.5 million, that's staggering enough, but 12 and older. Now remember, these are conservative estimates. According to, an, I'm sorry, according to the same survey, an estimated 95,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually, making alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States behind tobacco and poor self-care, diet, lack of exercise, and so forth. In 2010, alcohol misuse cost Americans $249 billion. According to that same 2019 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 39.7% of 12 to 20-year-olds reported that they have had at least one drink in their lives. About 7 million people ages 12 to 20, that's 18.5%, reported drinking alcohol in the past month. That's all underage, 12 to 20. According to the CDC, over 140,000 people die from excessive alcohol use each year in the United States. That averages out to over 383 people every day. According to the CDC, once again, the CDC is no fan of reasonable thought in a lot of cases. According to the CDC, every day 29 people in the United States die in motor vehicle crashes that involve an alcohol-impaired driver. This is one death every 50 minutes. Continuing with the drunk driving ideas, according to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, in 2017, a total of 1,147 children, 14 and younger, were killed in motor vehicle traffic accidents. Of those 1,147 fatalities, 220 occurred involving alcohol. According to the National Highway Highway Traffic Safety Administration, every day about 32 people in the United States die in drunk driving crashes. That's one person every 45 minutes. So they 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 even get tighter with it. In 2020, 11,654 people died in alcohol-impaired driving traffic deaths. That is a 14% increase from 2019. About 30% of all traffic crash fatalities in the United States involve alcohol. So, of course, you know, to help with the problem of impaired driving, let's legalize marijuana. Now, let's, let's, let's pause for a second. Are there medicinal uses for marijuana? There are. That's a fact. There are, and they're helpful to some people in different situations. 
and I believe that that should be accessed for those people, but it needs to be done in a responsible way. But having dispensaries everywhere that you can just walk in and get what you want, it's not helping anybody. Let's talk about the physical effects. According to the National Institute of Health in 2019, of the 85,688 liver disease deaths among individuals ages 12 and older, 43.1% involved alcohol. Among all cirrhosis deaths in 2015, 49.5% were alcohol-related. From 2010 to 2016, alcohol-related liver disease was the primary cause. Almost one in three liver transplants in the United States were because of alcohol abuse. It replaced hepatitis C as the number one cause. Research has shown that people who misuse alcohol have a greater risk of liver disease, heart disease, depression, stroke, stomach bleeding, cancers of the oral cavity, esophagus, larynx, pharynx, breast, liver, and colon. These individuals may also have problems managing conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, pain, sleep disorders. They may, they may increase their likelihood of unsafe sexual behavior. Alcohol consumption is associated with increased risk of drowning and injuries from violence, falls, and motor vehicle crashes. Alcohol consumption is also associated with an increased risk of harmful medication interactions. According to the March of Dimes, drinking alcohol during pregnancy increases your baby's chances of having these problems, premature birth, brain damage, problems with growth and development, birth defects like heart defects, hearing and vision problems, etc., fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which is intellectual and developmental disabilities, low birth weight, miscarriage, and stillbirth. Now, this next source is going to blow your mind because they are not even close to being friends of ours. According to the World Health Organization... Domestic abuse cases that involve alcohol, 55%. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, children of alcoholics are four times more likely than other children to become alcoholics themselves. According to the National Institute of Health, researchers have confirmed a longstanding finding that one in five college women experience sexual assault during their time in college. A majority of sexual assaults in college involve alcohol or other substances. This last one will resonate with our missionaries. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, 31% of state prisoners and 25% of federal prisoners reported drinking alcohol at the time of their offense. That's not even saying that it was a problem in their life. At the time they committed the crime, they were drinking. So here's my point. As we get into what the Bible says, we got to ask ourselves this question. Why in the world would we want to even involve such a damnable substance in our lives to begin with? Something that is addictive, destructive, and consumptive. Why are we fighting for it? Now let me pause. We've seen from the statistics it's a bad problem. And there are people that have, maybe are, and will walk into this church having battled alcohol. What do we do? We love them. And understand that we all have our alcohol. It may not be alcohol. We all have something that's tearing our lives up. All of us do. But the answer is the same for all of them. See? So now that we've done that, let's look at some precepts from within the Bible. So we, we've got some practical observations. We've kind of set the stage here. I may have telegraphed just a bit <laughs> where we're going with this. 
but some precepts from within the Bible. You'll be happy to know that I've not spent any time on alliteration tonight. I've not even worried with it tonight. Yeah, normally that's my thing. I didn't even worry about it tonight. We've got to begin with a historical understanding of wine and its use throughout the Bible. And here's one of the problems. We try to compare what you can get on the shelf at Walmart or the ABC store or whatever to what was in the Bible, and they're not the same thing. The wine of, of the Bible and the wine that you can buy now is not the same thing. They are not comparable. Their respective productions cannot be compared. It's erroneous. They're vastly different. The wine of the Bible had four purposes. Four purposes. Number one, sanitization. During Bible times, virtually none of the water was potable. Couldn't drink any of it. It had problems. It had microbes. By the way, that still exists in third world countries. And Detroit. You remember, they well, Flint, I think is where it was, actually. Flint had that real problem with water. And so what they would do is, because of all the dangerous microbes, most water in, in Bible times, grapes were reduced to a fermented paste, and this was added to water to kill dangerous microbes and make it drinkable. This was, it was early Kool-Aid, y'all. This was an extremely diluted solution, virtually incapable of getting anyone drunk unless it was purposely engineered to do so. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if there's a message that I'm going to get flack about from the interwebs, it's going to be this one. I have never seen Christians get so up in arms over a subject as they do over booze. All right, so it was used for sanitization. Wine was also used for celebration. It was a common fixture at celebrations, particularly Jewish ones whether they were feasts or weddings or what have you. And the alcohol content of that wine was determined by the occasion and by those in charge of its production. Now, I want to I give you something to think about. Turn to Psalm 104. Hold your place in Proverbs 20. We'll be back. Go to Psalm 104. I want you to see what God said was his purpose in wine, what God wanted wine to do in the life of his people. Psalm 104, verse 14. He, God, causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, an herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Wine that maketh glad the heart of man. The word glad can also be translated, and this is the word I'll use, joy so you could say that the purpose of wine from God's perspective was gladness joy now all those statistics that I read in that first part did that sound joyous to you that sound like gladness to you no celebration and the presence of wine was meant my God to be indicative of joy and gladness Remember that moving forward. Remember that. Its purpose from God is joy. So sanitization, celebration, there's a third reason, purpose. Medication. 
You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan pouring wine and oil into the wounds? How about this? 1 Timothy 5.23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake, and then often infirmities. Wine, even fermented wine, was sometimes used for medicinal purposes in Bible times. Okay, this is the most dangerous part of this whole message for me, with you. Hear everything I say before you convene a business meeting to to vote me out. It's my personal position that there is potentially a narrow allowance in Scripture for the use of alcohol for medicinal purposes. As long as it does not go against specific, well, let me get to that for a second. All right, let me give you the three criteria. I'm trying to, my notes are moving around in my head here. A narrow allowance in Scripture for the use of alcohol for medicinal purposes. All right, let's get, let's get some things here to help us know when that's okay. As long as it does not go against specific scriptural instruction. For instance, 1 Timothy 3.3, my understanding of 1 Timothy 3.3 tells me that as a pastor, I'm not to be given to wine. It's not an option for me. Now, the deacons breathe a sigh of release because they're not to be given to much wine. That's a whole different discussion. We're not getting into that. Okay. Number two, I would not do it if it feeds an addictive personality. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 tells us to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And so if this is something you're going to have a problem with, you best stay away from it. Okay. Stay with me. Don't fire me yet. The third, the third, as I see it, is, and this is the big one. You can use wine, or alcohol rather, for medicinal purposes, as long as it doesn't go against specific scriptural instruction, feed an addictive personality. Now, here's the big one. Or compromise your testimony. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And that's where the door shuts on us. Because my question to you, dear friend, is how do you get a hold of your alcohol without compromising your testimony? I don't care why he has it. You see Brother Davies walking out the ABC store with a bottle and a paper bag. What are you going to think? Well, I'll have it shipped. Okay. And that brings us to this summary. The presence of alcohol and related substances in medicine today make the acquisition of alcoholic drinks virtually unnecessary. Frankly, you don't need a fifth of liquor. You get some NyQuil. They didn't have NyQuil in the Bible. They didn't have fifths of liquor either, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Understand that we live in a different culture. And what all they had, all Timothy had to his, to his, uh, to his ailment was, was wine. But we have more than that. We have other ways of doing it. By the way, the same principles still apply, though. If I have a problem with painkillers, I probably ought to stay away from them. If it compromises my testimony, I probably ought to stay away from it. See? So that's the only, and it's so narrow, it's such a sliver. Can I tell you what I'm saying? If I roll up in your house, I roll up in Grandma's house, and Grandma got a brown medicine jar, 
that's got something in it that may or may not have been an old remedy, I'm not going to church you over that. Now, if grandma has a cough three times a day and has become addicted, we may have to have a conversation. I don't think that the, the, the spirit of, of the word here is, because, I mean, y'all looking at me like I'm talking crazy. We live in Appalachia. How many of y'all have told me, y'all have told, I'm about to out y'all. I'm about to call names. How many of y'all have told me, well, I'm going to tell you, when I was a kid, my grandma gave me a spoonful of something and it fixed everything. What do you think that was? Y'all looking at me like y'all pious and everything. I know what I'm saying here. And I'm saying, if that's your, if that's your story, I'm not going to church you over that. But I will tell you this, I see you rolling out the ABC store with a fifth of liquor, we're going to have a conversation. Hmm. I had you and then I didn't. <laughs> if there is any allowance so far, it is the most narrow of allowances for medicinal purposes, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about as a beverage. We're talking about as a beverage. Sanitation, celebration, medication, there's only one reason for it left. Inebriation. I'd love to stand here and tell you my lips have never touched the stuff. I've tasted about all there is. And there's not one of them that I ever drank for refreshment. I'm going to tell you, if you're parched, Jack Daniels isn't going to do it. And neither is your favorite Merlot. God made this interesting substance called water. And then he made it even better when it got incorporated into Coca-Cola. <laughs> the prime purpose for wine in most human applications is to alter one's mood to some degree. And Paul clearly condemns this. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. They're not what's best. All things are lawful for me. Listen to what he says. But I will not be brought under the power of any. And what does inebriation do? It brings your judgment under the power of that alcohol. Now let me give you an important point that we need to remember. And I give this point to anybody that I have this debate with, and it never goes anywhere with them, and I'm not sure why, but it's true. The Hebrew words that are used for wine, the Greek words that are used for wine, primarily oinos, can mean fermented or unfermented fruit of the vine. Either one. What determines which it is? Context. So let's say you're reading something in the New Testament and somebody drank wine and they got drunk. Guess what that oinos is? It's fermented. But in the absence of that, you can't make that determination. So when it says Jesus drank, it's an argument from silence that it was fermented. Okay, we'll get into that in a minute. The Hebrew and Greek words translated wine refer to juice squeezed from fruits of the vine and their alcohol content or lack thereof are determined by the contextual use within the passage. So just because the Bible says wine does not mean that it was alcoholic. It just doesn't. 
So now let's get into the meat of it. Back in Proverbs 20. We're going to spend one verse in Proverbs 20, and then we're going to Proverbs 23. What does the Bible say about alcohol? What does the Bible say about alcohol? Okay, here we go. Number one, it's a bad idea. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Is there any part of that verse that leads you to believe there's a good idea in there somewhere? Wine, by the way, refers to fruit-based drinks. Strong drink refers to grain-based drinks. That covers it all. Okay? Anything alcoholic. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It's deceptive, and and its use lacks wisdom. It's a bad idea. Now go to Proverbs 23. It leads to sickness and injury. It leads to sickness and injury. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Does that sound good yet? Anybody want a good dose of woe and sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? Verse 30. They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Verse 32. At the last it biteth like a serpent. And stingeth like an adder. Anybody enjoy snake bites? If you do, you're weird. Verse 34. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Boy, that sounds fun, doesn't it? The room spinning. You're sick as a dog. Boy, big fun there, huh? It's a bad idea. It leads to sickness and injury. Here's the third one. It's not to be drunk as a beverage when it's fermented. The Bible clearly says it. Proverbs 23, verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth moveth itself aright. That is speaking of the process of fermentation. So if you've got grape juice in the house, have at it. But as soon as it starts moving itself aright, it's time to get rid of it. It happened to me one time. Had some grape juice, kind of forgot about it. Didn't even look at it. Just poured it, took one sip, and I'm like, that then turned. So my wife finished it up, and uh, <laughs> y'all saw that one coming. I know you did. It's a bad idea. It leads to sickness and injury. The Bible clearly prohibits it being drunk as a beverage when it's fermented. Here's the next one. It leads to immorality. Proverbs 23, verse 33. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. 
you don't have to have statistics in front of you. You know this happens. People get drunk and they make bad decisions morally. This is not the last one exhaustively, but it's the last one we're going to cover. It's addictive. Proverbs 23, verse 35. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. This is a very negative scenario, isn't it? It's not good. It's not fun. They've stricken me. They've beaten me. When shall I wake? I'll seek it yet again. That's addiction. And by the way, that's true of anything that's addictive. It tears you to pieces. You know it's wrong. You hate it. And yet, you got to have it again. And anything in your life that does that to you shouldn't be a part of your life. Anything. Can I zoom through some scriptures with you real quick? Isaiah 5.11, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continue until night till wine inflame them. Isaiah 28 verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Verse 7, But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink and are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Verse 8, For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. Habakkuk 2 verse 15, Woe unto them that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Proverbs 30, now this is, man, I love this one. Proverbs 31 verse 4. It, it's not germane to the subject, but I, I just have always had this suspicion that Lemuel is a term of endearment for Solomon. It may not be, but it's the mother of this king, whoever it is. And listen to what she says in Proverbs 31, verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Well, it doesn't apply to us. That's Old Testament, and she's talking to a king. Oh, wait a minute. Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us what? Kings and priests. Hey, kings, it is not for kings to drink wine. Now, I've read you all these verses, and I will concede that there are a couple of passages that almost seem to indicate that God is at least tacitly okay with alcohol. It seems to say that. It doesn't, but it seems to. So let me give you a real basic principle of Bible study. Okay? When you have a multitude of verses, just as such what we just read, that say one thing, and a couple of verses or passages that seem to say another, you follow the multitude and figure out the couple. All right? So when somebody comes to me with one or two, but what about this? Okay, but what about these? What about these? So go to Matthew 11. This is one they run run to a lot. Matthew 11. 
By the way, if you're here tonight and you think that there is some allowance for, for, for some drinking, I would disagree with you, but I will still love you. I will still be your friend. And when we get to heaven, you will find out I was right. Matthew 11, verse 18, speaking of John the Baptist, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a devil. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Up, see there, Jesus drank wine. Okay. I'll give you that. But remember, wine doesn't have to be alcoholic. Okay? So let's, let's dig through this a minute. The fact that John the Baptist did not drink wine has nothing to do with Jesus. He was a Nazarite, and one of the requirements of his Nazarite vow was that he could not drink the fruit of the vine. has nothing to do with Jesus. Okay? Number two, the fact that it says Jesus was drinking in no way means that he was drinking fermented wine. And by the way, the term that we use now, I call it somebody drinking. We understand that to mean alcohol. That didn't exist in 1611, and it didn't exist in the originals in the Greek either. Drinking means drinking. What they're talking about is him being at houses like Zacchaeus' house and Matthew's house where wine was present. And by the way, Jesus' presence does not mean his endorsement. I'm glad Jesus is willing to get into the middle of sinners, aren't you? He certainly doesn't endorse our sin, but I'm glad he'll cozy up to me and love on me until I get things right with him. There is nothing, nothing that indicates that he drank fermented wine. And this accusation was made by who? His enemies who we shouldn't trust anyway. So that one's not helpful. Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Well, the wedding at Cana. I mean, and certainly, certainly the wine at the wedding was fermented. You know why we think that? We think that because the weddings we go to today, there's enough liquor to float a boat. That's why. Hadn't always been that way. John chapter 2, and third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Why? Could have been they were related. It wasn't because he was rich or he had done any miracles. He hadn't done any miracles yet. So I think there's a good shot he was invited to the wedding because somebody liked him. Jesus was a likable person. Jesus was enjoyable to be around. Hey, Christians, we could stand to be a little more enjoyable to be around too. That was free. When they wanted wine, they lacked it. By the way, wine, oinos, can mean fermented or unfermented. And there is nothing in this passage that tells us the context which way it goes. So if I have no context to tell me that it's fermented, then I'm just going to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. 
His mother saith unto his servants, good advice here, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's good advice for us, isn't it? Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. I think that's about 33 gallons apiece, if I remember correctly. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. It saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And he saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Though the traditional in some homes, nothing states that the wine at any point was fermented. And even if it was, once again, just because Jesus was there does not indicate that he endorsed it. And that's, by the way, oh... We've forgotten food. I'm going to take a little longer. We went through this thing for a while as, as Baptists that we got this idea that our presence in something meant that we endorsed all of it. And we robbed ourselves of a lot of opportunities to help people. I was a little bit pharisaical at my first church because I just had this idea that I couldn't fellowship with anybody who wasn't just like me. And I, I hurt a lot of people that way. You know what I've learned? Now, Jesus never compromised his holiness, never. But Jesus went to some people that I wouldn't have anything to do with. And just because he was there doesn't mean that he was in favor of everything that was going on there. It was his ministry. I doubt very seriously Brother Stevens and Brother Whitlow are in favor of everything that goes on in prisons. But they're there ministering. But anyhow, when we read this, this is what we think, because this is our culture. Ah, this is pretty impressive, because here's what we do. We, we use the good stuff, the good stuff, until everybody gets a couple sheets into the wind. And then we bring out the bad stuff, because they're too drunk to care at that point. That's not at all what he's saying. We assume that because of our nature, we assume the worst. But that's not what he's saying. The key word there is good. The word good comes from the Greek word kalos. And we, we, we tend to make this assumption that he's talking about the good stuff. Like we would understand it. But that's not what he's saying at all. The word good... Kalos means this. Intrinsically good, beautiful, or well adapted to its purpose. Remember that. Well adapted to its purpose. What's the purpose of wine according to God? Joy. Does fermented wine adapt itself to the purpose of joy? No. Quite the opposite. It destroys people. So anything that Jesus made 
was made with the purpose of bringing joy. So with that in mind, every man at the beginning to set forth good wine, that wine that is best of quality, that wine that is most suited to its purpose of joy. By the way, it says when men have well drunk. Would you remember, be reminded, it doesn't say when men are well drunk. When men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine, this wine that is most suited for its purpose until now. Are you saying he's talking about wine that's moral? Well, let me give you some other uses of that word kalos. You tell me. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good. Does that sound moral to you? Verse 21, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. 2 Corinthians eight twenty one, Providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So we have two clear uses of good in the moral realm, and then the word honest. It sounds to me like we're talking about wine that is morally sound. Not for nothing, but if Jesus had produced fermented wine, it would go against every warning in his word to stay away from it. Not only that, he would be inviting man to do wrong. And James 1.13 tells us, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. I have had people, some who I love dearly, laugh at me when I say that Jesus did not produce fermented wine. But I stand behind it, he did not produce fermented wine. I cannot find any instance in the Bible that supports the idea that Jesus produced wine that was fermented. So what's my conclusion? What's my so what? what? What do we take from this? It is evident to me that the Bible makes no allowance for alcohol's use as a beverage. It's designed by God was that it bring joy. And if it doesn't bring joy, it's not of God. That's my answer to the question. We're going to go out and sit around, enjoy bouncy houses and eat, and if you want to debate, have at it. If those of you watching online want to debate this with me, email robert.branson. <laughs> Boy, you're not going to find it in that fermented bottle of wine. You'll find it in Jesus Christ. That's where your joy is. That's where your joy is. And I think anybody who's reasonable would agree that, that even if you disagree with what the Bible teaches about it, I don't think anybody in here would, would, would be so foolish as to say that alcohol use is a good thing in this country. It's not. It's not. 